The British, the British dream. Below our expectations. We're about to be an all country. We're about to be a country. Wonderful to be here. The British dream podcast. Join us. Powerful people as we launch up despicable acts like these and the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this Get up is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hello and thanks for joining the British Dream, Vice's politics podcast. My name is Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. In case you hadn't noticed, the British Dream is coming out every two weeks, so get stuck in and subscribe. In a bit we're going to be talking to the academic and author Matt Myers, author of the book Student Revolt, Voices of the Austerity Generation. It's an oral history of the 2010 student movement that cast off the cliché of an apathetic youth, embarrassed Nick Clegg, sacked the Tory HQ, but didn't quite manage to stop tuition fees going up. Matt reckons that all of that is a helpful lens through which to look at what's going on today, particularly because a lot of the people who were angry students back then are movers and shakers in the movement behind Corbyn now. One of the reasons that the book interested me is pure self-indulgence. I was involved in the student protests in 2010, and it was a pretty formative experience. At University of Newcastle, I was part of a little crew which found itself at Millbank when it all kicked off. Police with riot shields and helmets try to regain order. Try to calm down. How did they expect us to pay 9000 for uni fees? And behave like an adult. I was a student in Newcastle and 2009, me and some friends had set up something called, with the sort of clumsy acronym MFEN, which is Newcastle Free Education Network. And basically we were kind of aware that the government was looking to make moves to raise the price of tuition fees. And we started as this sort of fairly explicitly like radical left-wing group that wanted free education. And I remember going to certain like meetings in the student union where the official student union people were trying to push on us to, to have this vote to accept the NUS's position, which is a graduate tax. And it was very much like four people turning up to give the like sort of democratic mandate of Newcastle Student Union. Um, so yeah, we set up this group with like literally five people in a room. And then I guess one of the first like concrete things we did was to organise people to go down to the student protest that ended up being Millbank. And yeah, I was there that day and saw Millbank get smashed up, which was like, you know, whatever you think of the politics of that or whatever, it was kind of an amazing thing to sort of be aware of. I felt like, what if I had been born two years younger? Uh, I've got a brother who's two years older than me, so I guess I'm slightly aware of like that kind of proximity and like how our lives are slightly different because they're slight, like pretty close, but slightly different ages. And I thought I could have a younger brother who could be screwed over. I, I think I, I think I knew friends of mine who had younger siblings who were stood to lose out. And also, I just kind of been into like left wing politics as like almost like a sort of teenage hobby. I remember just reading a lot about the Iraq War and being a little bit too young to go on demonstrations against it. Uh, and like my dad taking the day off work to go and like someone in my brother's year taking the day off school to go. And that was quite a thing. It was like, what? He can't, he can't take a day off school to any, any kid, you know? And like he did it. And so I just remember being very against the Iraq war and not actually doing anything about it. Cause I was literally, that was like my first sort of knowledge of politics being a thing almost. By the time I got to uni, I kind of wanted to do something. I do remember the sense of like, just this is fucking bullshit that uh, Nick Clegg and Vince Cable and uh, David Willits all had their university paid for and how come they won't let other people have that? I guess that's another thing actually that that pushed people to to act was obviously the iconic 
Lib Dem betrayal. <laughs> um, yeah, and just like, yeah, exactly. This this sense of like, this is not fair. So I feel like um, Milbank and like the sort of smashing up of the HQ there and stuff, I think that the fact that that happened, I feel partly came from some people's dis- sort of knowledge that uh, the marches against the Iraq war had achieved nothing or perceived to have achieved nothing, certainly not what they really wanted to achieve. The, like, the Iraq war happened despite a million people marching on the streets peacefully, sort of uh, obediently almost. And then you get Milbank and like, I feel like at the time, a lot of the uh, a lot a lot of the justifications, whether they were like strongly articulated or whether they were just kind of implicit, were well, peaceful protest doesn't work. So if we smash a few windows, then so be it, kind of thing. And then I guess you can then trace a line from there to now, which is oh wait, that didn't work either actually. <laughs> and there's a lot of like specific people who are named in the book who whose politics formed in the in the student movement and who are now like you know have actual positions in the Corbyn project as, you know, people working for John McDonnell or fairly recognisable media figures from the left who, yeah, would have been in a sleeping bag in a lecture theatre in the UCL in 2010, right? Tensions are high tonight after MPs voted to lift the cap on tuition fees. It's interesting remembering that time and thinking about how much it formed opinions that I've held on to since. I can remember a sense of empowerment and solidarity that came from taking to the streets and from occupying our university, and also how our activist group slowly fell apart as momentum ran out and people had exams to sit. Matt Myers is an academic and author. He's the guy behind the book, Student Revolt, Voices of the Austerity Generation. He's got his own views. Matt says that the student movement was formative for a lot of young people and laid a foundation for the surge in support for the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn. I think that's obviously correct, He also says that as students couldn't force a change from the government, they learn that they need politicians to do the right thing for them. If that's true, then I wonder if we've unlearned another lesson from 2010. Nick Clegg's betrayal of the youth vote showed the cynicism of compromise for power. The student movement was a rejection of being manipulated so that someone else can form a government, and a declaration that people can impact on politics on their own terms, and not simply when there's an election. What was your relationship with the student movement? Were you a student then? I was the last... I was doing my A-levels the last year at the time. And, yeah, I I went to went to lots of the protests. Mm-hmm. Um, were, yeah. you, were you at Millbank? Uh, yes, yeah. Did you see it get smashed up and stuff? I actually left... Uh, I left quite early and I was quite, not quite annoyed, but I, I still felt... I was still in the courtyard. What did you think? It's really hard to describe it because it comes out of the blue. You're not expecting it. For some people, they built up this idea of storming of the Winter Palace, May 68. They've got some idea of this future that they've got a set of politics they can sort out their personal experiences into this long historical narrative. Whereas I suppose I... I'm probably slightly naive... um, I suppose many people were, and you just didn't think that these things happened. Mm-hmm. And certainly that you wouldn't be experiencing them in, in a way. Everything felt a little bit extraordinarily exciting. You felt something was changing, that history was being made, but also very precarious, that because nothing seemed to have happened in the past, even though I think that, that narrative needs to be challenged, you sometimes felt like this could fizzle out immediately, or it could blow up into something like extraordinary 
And in the end, yeah, the movement develops a uh, momentum of its own. I remember very vividly the next demonstration being being kettled in, in Whitehall mm. uh, for hours and being absolutely freezing. Um, the police van, uh, the kettle, police smashing people with batons, people trying to push their way out with the um, fences of uh, building works. I remember also the 30th November demonstration, the freezing cold, where the students tried to make, take the police for a run around London, being sleet. That being very fun, people doing directions on there. They didn't, well, you had internet on your phones then, but it wasn't really the same mm. kind of technology running around Victoria. It has become a ritual confrontation. After all, this is round four. There was a planned route agreed by Scotland Yard, but it didn't last long. Do you remember a moment of seeing what was going on at Millbank and, like, literally, because I remember walking past this office and something going on and not knowing what was happening, how did you sort of alight on, oh, wait, there's this office building, what's going on? There were some people who wanted to do an occupation at Millbank, that, that is quite clear. Mm. But it wasn't, no one planned for it to go in the way that it did. And from piecing together the narratives, the people at the front of the march, some of them brought their banner round into the, into the courtyard. No one knew that that was going to end up in the sacking of the ruling party's headquarters. It was only as the actions of probably some individuals, who knows, to walk in, someone starts throwing a coin maybe or a smashing window. And then something happens. It's this moment that you can't really plan. Mm -hmm. um, it just happens, I don't know, but you can only really explain it given the serious levels of anger and the lack of representation that we've been totally betrayed, mm. young people, by the government. No one was speaking for us and the only way that you could make yourself heard is by doing something really quite extraordinary. Um, I think that's what explains why it's happened. This month, today, now, feels horribly like November 2002 with all the build-up to the war. The Shadow Chancellor and the leader of the Labour Party were also, well, they also went to the occupations, they also went to the demonstrations. That's one of the most interesting things about it and why, obviously, the students trust John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, but they don't trust Theresa May, who was the Home Secretary at the time. Mm. Nor do they trust Ed Balls, who is the Shadow Home Secretary, who basically justified all of the police um, actions. John McDonnell went to the UCL occupation, gave a lo long speech about how students stood in the tradition of the suffragettes and and the first trade unionists in Britain. And Jeremy Corbyn stood up, who's the only person in Parliament to defend the students. I mean, they were really isolated figures. Yeah. But the organisational forms which have now been... Well, now become dominant. I mean, people engaging in momentum and the Labour Party, electoral forms, the complete opposite of occupying universities. I mean, there still are occupations, though. One's going on right now in London College of Communications against gentrification. But the political landscape has, has totally changed. I think one of the major contextual uh, points to remember is that the 
response of the British ruling class to and the uh, ruling class across Europe and North America to the financial crisis in 2008 was to socialise immense amounts of private debt of uh, banks, inject huge amounts of liquidity into the financial system, print money, quantitative easing, and basically socialise all of these debts um, which have been um, racked up in the past 30 years and make ordinary people, especially those who are least able to resist, pay for that crisis. And because it was the state which was organising that process, attempting to right the problems of profitability, um, raise the levels of growth, reduce the levels of government spending, you were going to get massive protests. George Osborne says, oh, I quote him in the book, he said, we expected this, um, even if David Willits didn't. That was one of the major ideological tenets of, of the Tory party. It's going to hurt, it's going to be quick, it's going to be sharp, but ultimately in the long run, future generations will, will benefit. But because the state had taken on this role as the arbiter of, of debt, and obviously that comes with all these ideological components as well, um, the people who, uh, the deserving and the undeserving. Students then found that, I think young people have found in recent years, that only by a project which is orientated towards taking state power, that's, that can claim to be representative of the will of the people rather than just the actions of minorities of, of young people who, even if they make claims to speak for young people, they can't yet have the means to become the hegemonic force in, in society. They need Young people need to unite with other social forces. Um, and you might, obviously you see that in the, the most famous student movements with in the late 60s and 70s, we have this amalgam many places of work of workers industrial workers working class and and student movements coming to, coming together and mutually reinforcing each other i think what we saw at 20, in 2017 in the election was young people voting in their hundreds thousand millions for jeremy corbyn but also being joined by people who are not like them older voters working class voters migrant communities this is a plethora of, of of forces this the what jeremy corbyn jeremy corbyn is called the many rather than the few this political subject that has a unity greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, that's that's what people were searching for in the post twenty ten period. And it was generally it was uh, the people who were affected by the different rounds of cuts who moved. First it was the students, then it was the public sector workers who moved in twenty eleven. Big strikes, nothing happened. Disabled people and against the cuts, they had their they had their strikes. You had you can cut. You had all these different rolling actions. It happened, but never at one point were you able to have this point of concentration where all these forces came together. Well, at the general election, through being a general election, that did happen. Mm. Um, and also that the changes in policy can be reconciled at the level of, of the state. If students can't force the government to give them free education or even to stop the fee rise, then voting in a government that's going to do it for them seemed like the only only option. They've already got lines going to stop us up the top there already. So is there a plan? They stopped us on the proper route of the march, so we chose a different route. This opening of the sphere of the possible is a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre that I quote in the introduction. The reason why I thought that was a great quote, Sartre talking about uh, 68, is that there are moments like these in which the future and the past seem totally transformed. What seemingly 
is impossible, now seems attainable. What had previously been seen to be uh, inevitable now seems largely contingent. Um, what people thought uh, about austerity totally changed. It now became a contingent thing. People wouldn't fight back, people thought. There were no debates in the run-up to the 2010 student movement about even stopping the rise in fees or even having anyone fighting against austerity. You had Guardian columnists saying protesting against student fees is like protesting against the tendency of water to flow downhill. Mm. That was the kind of level of discourse uh, that was going on after the 2010 student movement. That disappeared. No longer could the government, the coalition government, the ruling class, say that young people, that the people that they were uh, organising austerity to, to uh, the people who are going to suffer at the brunt of austerity, that they wouldn't fight back. Now there is a narrative that uh, the Tories can't, can't fight. Um, mm. That's why the field of possibility opens up. Mm -hmm. Because young people can say, we did it once, we might be able to do it, do it again. <laughs> In a wider political sense, uh, I feel like the 2010 student movement came out of a feeling that basically people could do whatever they wanted to young people because they wouldn't vote anyway. So what's the point? Now you've got, I feel like, the exact reversal of that where the Conservative Party is really freaking out that they've lost the young vote entirely. Do you think anyone's going to be sort of convinced by their attempts to like get down with the youth and win young people back? No. The simple reason that it's... For them, I think, the Tory party, they think politics works in a series of gimmicks, a series of emotional and signs which you give off to the electorate. You, a policy proposal here framed in the right way, someone talking professionally over there, rather than seeing politics as about the debate about what society should be like. Both the Tory party in Britain currently accept all of the tenets of the neoliberal order, which has, over the past 30 years has slowly lost its hold over people's minds, they're not willing to discuss, even put on the table, the things that now people think are just and necessary. Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, and the Labour Party manifesto was critical in reshaping what people think is possible. And obviously the 2010 student movement was also this opening of the field of uh, sphere of the possible. Um, the Tories aren't willing to discuss these issues unless they t start to talk about cancelling tuition fees, unless they start to talk about ending austerity by getting rid of zero-hour contracts, raising the minimum wage. They're not going to win young people back. Um, although I, I would say that I suppose I, I, I agree with some of your sentiments about feeling the precarity of it all because... If young people came into uh, politics, you know, the Iraq war and you lost 2010 and we lost, what's going to happen if it doesn't work out? We don't get the Labour government under Jeremy Corbyn. That's like uh, two steps ahead of what anyone's thinking at the moment. <laughs> what is interesting is the generational break, the generational cleavage in, in British politics isn't one that you're seeing everywhere. We're seeing in Anglo-Saxon countries, especially, this pronounced shift um, of young people to vote for new parties of the left and individuals like Bernie Sanders or 
Jeremy Corbyn and also in wider values. As he looked at France, lots of young people are voting for Marine Le Pen. Mm. And often they're just as likely to vote for Marine Le Pen as they uh, as they are for someone like Jean uh, Jean Luc Mélenchon. And if if they're doing that, are they doing that? So like one of the things in the book, or one of your points, is kind of that like this was a moment where people started seeing uh, students started seeing themselves as students in much the same way as some pe- people would like identify with a class. It's not so obvious age differential in shaping. Uh, shaping voting mm. as it is as it is in Britain I think that's something quite specific to Britain uh, mm. and possibly America would, would you locate that partly in 2010? I think there's something to do with the level of the neoliberal turn in both America and, and Britain and the huge space there is for what the Corbyn project is attempting to do which is to reinvent a social democratic centre of British politics where things that have been taken for granted in the post-war period, full, full employment, uh, big state investment, uh, free education, nationalised industries and in the major utilities, uh, wealth, taxes on wealth possibly, of closing of tax loopholes for the big corporations, the rich and the powerful paying more so that we can have a proper welfare state, an NHS which is nationalised rather than being sliced off and into various pieces, the things that people took for granted. Um, there's a lot of space for that, and I think young people's hopes of living in a different society are quite obviously being channeled channeled through that. So I, I would say that it's structural, economic and social, which uh, the forces which are driving young people to. But it doesn't mean that that is an inevitable and it's going to continue unabated into the future. The role of political actors, what they do, is obviously incredibly important. As we saw with uh, Nick Clegg, the abolition of tuition fees, mm. he saw over a number of years young people decided to vote for the Lib Dems, joining the party, becoming active in it. That completely stopped after that. And so the uh, sort of disheartening defeat of 2010 didn't really end there. Yeah, that wasn't the end of the story, basically. Cool, that's that. Lord knows where this is all going to end up. Thanks to our man, Matt Myers. Check out his book. It's out on Pluto Press. The British Dream was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. If you're listening on iTunes and you want to give the pod a five-star rating, then please do. Thanks. See you in a couple of weeks. Stay positive. Keep the dream alive.